En Ford creemos que ya sea que estés bajo el foco de atención o bajo tu propio techo, que tengas 90 minutos o 9 horas, que estés empezando cambios o un largo viaje, Fortaleza es hacer todo, como si el mundo entero te estuviera mirando. Presentamos la nueva Ford F-150 2024. Fuerza así de inteligente, solo puede ser F-150. Construida con orgullo Ford. Fuerza Ford. Aloha mamá, ¿dónde andas? <ríe> Seguro de compras. Tengo mucho que contarte. Hawái es increíble. He estado de un lado a otro comunidad. Todos son súper talentosos. Ya reparamos otro helicóptero Blackhawk y oficialmente formamos nuestro equipo de fútbol. Para la próxima, te cuento cómo voy con el surf y me cuentas qué te pareció el podcast que te compartí. ¿Ok? Te quiero mucho. Be all you can be. Visitando goarmy.com diagonal español. This is Real Life Economics, Episode 1, brought to you by Tomboy X. Our topic today is immigration, and I'm your host, Gina Sanchez. Welcome to Real Life Economics, where we take economic theory out into the real world, because let's face it, economics happens to you in real life. You can find our show notes at www.reallifeeconomics.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at, at @reallifeecon. And if there are any topics you want us to cover, drop us an email at reallifeecon at gmail.com. Today I'll be joined by James Mitchell, real-life economics contributor and BAFTA-winning documentarian, as well as special guest, Dr. Michael Clemens. Michael Clemens is an economist at the Center for Global Development and author of the forthcoming book, The Walls of Nations. So let's talk immigration. Unless you've been living under a rock lately, you've probably read article after article about immigration. Harrowing photos of children in cages has sparked mass moral outrage, while mass levels of inequality and poverty across America have sparked outrage at their own difficult circumstances, and those have taken an anti-immigration stance in the hopes of improving American quality of life. And the question we keep hearing in the media is, are immigrants taking your jobs, keeping wages down, and making you poorer, or... Are they keeping our population from shrinking and therefore making you richer? Or is this even the right question to be asking? Well, Gina, I think it's easy to forget that the vast majority of Americans are actually immigrants or descended from immigrants who've already integrated. And the integration, it turns out, has fueled massive growth over the years. So why is everybody so concerned about suddenly putting a stop to a process that's been going on for over 200 years? Well... It turns out that Americans actually do have a real reason to feel aggravated and frustrated. Mainly, most people in the US feel like they're being left out of the massive gains we've seen in corporate profits and the stock market over the past nine years, since the financial crisis back in 2008. Companies are making more money than ever, so why doesn't the average person feel any richer? The missing component seems to be wage growth, according to a recent CNN Money article. Wage growth has been fairly flat in recent reports and it's meaningfully below the 5% wage growth rate that workers enjoyed pre-crisis. And it remains a puzzle to many economists as to why wage growth hasn't rebounded as the unemployment rate has hit decade lows. Jobs are clearly easier to find, just not one that pays the bills. 
And to make matters worse, this lack of wage growth has not been equally shared. Forbes recently published an article called Where the Financial Inequality is Rampant. And guess who topped the charts? You guessed it, the good old United States of America. Turns out that in the United States, the top 10% of households control 79% of the wealth. You heard right. 10% of households control almost 80% of the wealth. And here's another scary statistic. The bottom 60% of households in the United States only own 2.4% of the total wealth. So in dollar terms, the Pew Research Center showed that in 2016, upper-income families had a median income of about $810,000, while lower-income families only had a median household net worth of $10,800. And that's the widest wealth divide we've seen in 30 years. And if you look at the numbers by race. The gap in lower income families is actually narrowing, but not because black and Hispanic families are making more, but because white families are now poorer than ever. So it's not surprising that these families that are more impoverished are lashing out and pointing the finger at immigrants who they believe are stealing their jobs. But at the same time, the New York Times published another whopping statistic. In 2016, the fertility rate in the United States was the lowest it's ever been putting the birth rates below the replacement rate, or the rate of births required to offset the rate of deaths, which technically means that the population of the United States should be declining. Let's remember the trend growth rate of a nation's wealth is equal to the growth rate of the labour population times the productivity of the population. So if the growth rate of the labour population rates is falling, then we have to expect that the total growth rate of the nation's wealth should also start to slow, which isn't good for anyone. But it turns out that the population of the United States is not shrinking, even though it should be. And that's because immigration is saving the day. So how should we be thinking about the issue? Is it really an us versus them question? Or is there a better way to think about this? James, that's a great question. And from my vantage point, we have to consider that this is really a question of short-run costs versus long-term gains. If you start with the assumption that we're all immigrants or descended from immigrants, then this is really a question of what does it cost us now and how much is it worth in the long run? So let's dive into the theory. Immigration sits in a part of economic study known as labor economics, primarily because the movement of people from one country to another impacts the supply of labor in that country, and as a result, the wages paid to that labor population. The theoretical underpinnings to understand the economics are pretty straightforward. Let's assume that the current working-age residents of a country make up the supply of that labor, and businesses operating in that country demand that labor. Businesses offer a wage to entice people to work for them. Labor economists assume that businesses will only pay you just enough to get the right people in the job. I mean, think about the last time you asked your boss for a raise. And people will only apply for jobs that give them the best wages they can get for any given skill set. And let's face it, we know you're all browsing Monster.com when your cheapskate boss isn't looking. So the final wage is set by that process. Companies trying to pay the least while workers are trying to get the most. However, if you suddenly have an influx of new participants into a labor market, the competition for wages increases, and the wage people are willing to accept often decreases, and that's because there are more people competing for the same jobs. 
Think of it as musical chairs. Someone is going to get stuck without a chair, according to the theory. And in the short term, that's borne out in the evidence. Perhaps the most well-known economist on the subject is Professor George J. Borjas, who is the Robert W. Scrivener Professor of Economics and Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and who, incidentally, was born in Havana, Cuba, and immigrated to the United States in 1962 himself. Interestingly, his findings were the pinnacle of a Trump pre-election campaign where Trump told his cheering crowd that decades of record immigration have produced lower wages and higher unemployment for our citizens, especially for African-American and Latino workers. In fact, Borjas' research suggested that wage trends over the past century suggests that a 10% increase in the number of workers with a particular skill set probably lowers that wage group by at least 3%. Well, so far, that's what... I would say is consistent with the musical chairs theory. However, he goes on to say that even after the economy is fully adjusted, those skills groups that have received the most immigrants will still offer lower pay relative to those that receive fewer immigrants. But he said in an article in Politico magazine that there's actually more to that story. In fact, we also experience what he calls the immigrant surplus. Well, that sounds positive, right? But no, it's not. Basically, he says that somebody's lower wage is always somebody else's higher profit. In this case, immigration redistributes wealth from those who compete with immigrants to those who use immigrants. So that's from the employee to the employer. So while economic growth does surge, contributing approximately $50 billion per year in this immigration surplus, the surplus goes to corporations and people who have enough money to invest in the stock market rather than the average American. And that, according to Borjas, is the nail in the coffin. The total wealth redistribution from the average American to the man, like your boss or anyone rich enough to own a stock portfolio, that's enormous. Roughly half a trillion dollars a year in cost versus $50 billion a year in the immigration surplus. And that seems to be the crux of this inequality crisis in America, according to Borjas. But he goes on to say that any immigration policy should consider how to mitigate these redistributional effects in order to be successful. And that, he says, should be the real focus of the debate in America. Okay, that's all well and good. But Gina, there's important long-range research that suggests that the impact of immigration can't and shouldn't be measured in the short or even medium term. Really, it's the long run we should be considering. Take, for example, work at the Centre for Economic Policy Research, which found that immigrants have a positive and long-lasting impact on the places where they settle. This long-range study looked at immigrant data from 1860 to 1920 and concludes that countries that received more immigrants had significantly higher incomes, less poverty, less unemployment, more urbanisation and higher educational attainment over time. This study, conducted by professors at Harvard, Yale and the London School of Economics, estimates that a 5% increase in the share of immigrants to a county during the period from 1860 to 1920 led to a 20% boost to average incomes by the year 2000. It's not just that immigrants went to the most economically promising places but that the presence of immigrants led to increased economic growth. They move in, buy or rent a house, shop for groceries, buy clothes. They're putting money back into the economy. So while they may take a job to earn pay, they're also spending that money that they earn. By doing that, they're creating jobs for someone else. In the long run, that adds up to real growth and wealth. Las acciones dicen más que las palabras. Abre el Pro Access Tailgate disponible de la nueva Ford F-150. Sí, 
una puerta oscilatoria de fácil acceso para convertir su cama en tu nuevo taller. Conecta tus herramientas al Pro Power Onboard disponible. Ya sea que necesites soldar o cortar madera, con la F-150 puedes. Fuerza así de inteligente, solo puede ser F-150. Construida con orgullo Ford. Pro Access Tailgate disponible en la primavera de 2024. Ok, enough about your underpants. Let's get back to immigration, shall we? Let's consider some more viewpoints on the subject. Joining us from the Center for Global Development is Michael Clemens, co-director of Migration, Displacement and Humanitarian Policy and author of the upcoming book, The Walls of Nations. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Thank you. So you study the impacts of dislocations of labor populations by new populations. And in your experience, my understanding is that immigration is just one example. Can you give us some other examples of the long-term impacts of labor displacement? Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you compared immigration in the short term to musical chairs. There's a certain number of chairs and more people searching for those chairs. Uh, uh, displace, uh, can displace other people looking for them. Uh, and I think that when uh, a lot of people think through the economics of immigration, that's where they start, and it's a reasonable place to start. But I don't think we should stop there, because there are two other big parts to the story. Uh, immigrants don't just sit on chairs. They also make chairs, and they buy chairs. So what I mean by that is that labor is not just something that's for sale in a market and more of it for sale would drive the price down like, like bananas. Uh, workers are, are other things as well. And just in pure economic terms, not human terms, they are also uh, factors of production, and they're also consumers. And in both of those senses, they become a, a part of the economy. They stimulate the production of and the demand for other goods and services, including things that are made by natives, Uh, stimulating demand for native labor and uh, exerting a, a countervailing upward pressure on the wages of everybody in a labor market that offsets the musical chairs effect. Uh, the, the thing that you uh, rightly stressed uh, earlier is that those things happen on different timescales. The musical chairs effect uh, happens up front and the, the more uh, the diffusion of, of other forces in the economy can take some time. That is why it's important to take a, a, a long-term view of, of immigration to, uh, to, to uh, alongside the shorter-term view. So you referred to other big changes in the labor market, and I, I think this broader view can help us understand things like when women came en masse into the labor market, Why didn't that make everybody poorer? Why didn't it simply drive down men's wages? And why haven't uh, men's wages simply fallen since the 1950s, which is when women really started coming in large numbers into the labor market? And it's because of this, uh, these additions to the musical chairs model. It, it wasn't just that there were now women alongside men looking for a fixed number of chairs. Women also made chairs and women also bought chairs. Women became part of the economy, complementing men, stimulating the demand for men's labor uh, and becoming part of the, the firms and organizations that were contributing to men's productivity. And that's why men and women have uh, both increased their productivity and earnings alongside each other rather than women simply displacing men. Now, that said, women did displace men to a small extent uh, right at the beginning. It's actually been shown that in the 1950s, some of the women entering the labor market had exerted a, a modest downward pressure on the wages of some men who were already there. 
uh, particularly the lowest skilled men. But from a longer term perspective, I don't think any of us today would think that that uh, sharp uh, limits on the female labor force participation were the way to make that uh, a, an economic opportunity for everybody involved. What a great way to look at it. That's that's really, really some amazing points you're making. I mean, the idea that we don't just compete for chairs, we can also make our own chairs. That is just such an amazing uh, insight. And I think, you know, one of the challenges that we have when we're talking about this um, is the fact that everybody is so concerned with preserving what we have kind of at the, at the without thinking about the idea that actually more people uh, make the pie bigger, um, this idea of making more chairs. Absolutely. and But I think a, a key thing to keep in mind is, is what you rightly stressed, which is that those things happen on different timescales. So uh, the, it, it's been shown by leading economists, Darona Jamolu and David Otter, that it, in fact there were men who were, were displaced by women entering the labor force. And that's a real thing that they experienced, and that is uh, not easy to experience. And I, I, when I say that in a longer-term perspective, there are there were massive gains to that. Uh, that's not to to negate that that's something that men experienced in the 1950s. And I, I think that we need to, uh, to take careful account of the the winners and losers from any big labor market change. That's something I'd, I'd like to pick up on, actually, Michael. Um, the, um, th- there's obviously a political dimension to this as well. Um, and uh, as we've seen with um, the manner in which Donald Trump appealed to sort of certain sections, uh, certain sections of the population, is it fair to say that the impact um, that uh, immigration is having in the US is hitting a particular part of the labour market. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, in the reports you read, it, it tends to be the impact on lower skilled areas of the economy that's stressed. Uh, absolutely. So the, I think the, the consensus of economists is best represented by a, uh, a panel that the National Academy of Sciences put together a couple of years ago, uh, which assembled uh, some of the leading uh, thinkers in the, in the field. And their consensus was that the average effect on, uh, of recent immigration on U.S. workers' wages was very small and couldn't reliably be distinguished from zero. Uh, but the panel did not achieve consensus on the effect on the least skilled workers, particularly uh, people who did not finish high school, uh, mm-hmm. with, with some uh, very uh, serious economists believing that there has been substantial negative effects on them. Now, that is a very small portion of the U.S. labor market. So it, it, in terms of young people entering the labor force now, uh, that is about 7% uh, of, of workers. So that's, that's nowhere near... Uh, the, the, the size that it would take to uh, to explain uh, a, a large political constituency for the current U.S. administration, but it's something that could uh, that could certainly be in the mix, uh, and it, it is a it, it's a, it, it's not a it's not a minuscule part of the population, and and it is possible that there have been uh, important effects on their wages. I, I wouldn't have realised that, that the actual figure was as low as 7%, but I guess maybe that just reflects the way, as as a subject, it's something 
which from a, a media and from a, a, a politician's perspective, uh, it's so ripe for pushing people's emotional buttons and actually getting them to react in, in how they behave at the polls. Um, so I guess it's kind of out of proportion. But another thing I wanted to ask you about, just sort of looking north of the border from, from you over in the States, there's a country that is remarkably open to immigration and doesn't seem to have suffered any of the disastrous side effects. Um, there's a report in The Atlantic that says, for decades, Canada has sustained exceptionally high levels of immigration. It's the most inclusive country in the world and its attitudes towards immigrants, religion and sexuality. And this is a 2018 survey by the polling company Ipsos. Are they sort of a role model for the rest of us? Should we all try and be a bit more like Canada? I think that the historical experience of the US and other countries does have a lot to teach about immigration. I think when a lot of people think about uh, about immigration, they wonder wh what the right level should be. And the way the law works, there has to be some level that you pick. And uh, I think a lot of people have a, a feeling that even if there are many uh, good economic aspects to it, at some point, enormous level of inflow, there must be a point at which the country where immigrants are going uh, gets overwhelmed, either economically, culturally, or in, in some other way. So the question is, where is that? And one thing I, I know right now about the U.S. is that immigrants are uh, about 14 percent of the U.S. population. Uh, they're, they're just under 14 percent of the U.S. population is foreign-born. And that's not uh, that's relatively high by historical standards, but it's not at all a, a, an all time high. It was actually higher in 1885 and 1895 and 1905. And uh, I also note that that people have a, a systematic tendency to overstate the point at which the, the country where the immigrants are going could get overwhelmed. So for example, when the United States took the drastic step of banning all immigration by ethnically Chinese people uh, in 1882. And that was a, a, a ban that, with immaterial exceptions, lasted for 83 years. Uh, at that time, Chinese immigrants were 0.2% of the U.S. population. Uh, and it, it, in retrospect, it, it's hard to understand how that was a, the basis for a, a massive nationwide uh, bipartisan effort to, to exclude them, which was really based on the, the idea that they were going to uh, overwhelm the U.S. labor market and, and U.S. culture in some sense. So getting to Canada, uh, the, the foreign-born fraction of the population of Canada right now is 22%. So that's uh, certainly much higher than the U.S. at 14%. It's, it's really much higher than the U.S. is going to get uh, in, in our lifetimes. So the U.S. Census Bureau predicts that on, on current trends, uh, the U.S. Uh, will get to about 17% foreign-born by 2060. That is 42 years from now. So there there mm -hmm. just isn't much prospect that the U.S. is ever going to get as high as, as Canada on that measure. And parts of Canada, you know, Toronto is 46.1% foreign-born at the moment. And these are uh, these are, are are largely people from developing countries. So six of the seven top origin countries for Canadian immigrants now uh, are the Philippines, India, Iran, uh, Syria, China, and Pakistan. So these are not uh, uh, traditional uh, immigrants in the in the histories of the U.S. and, and Canada. But uh, Toronto, 
and uh, and Canada at large are just wonderful places to live. The the economy is doing well. Uh, the the fiscal situation of the government uh, of the of their socialized health system uh, is is sound. Uh, the national security of Canada is sound. There's the only recent major terrorist attack in Canada uh, perpetrated last year was actually perpetrated by a native Canadian against immigrants. Uh, it was the murder of six Muslim immigrants and gunning down 19 more at a at a mosque. Uh, it, it was not perpetrated by immigrants. It was perpetrated on immigrants. And really, Canada has, has actively recruited immigrants as an effective solution to many of its economic problems. So since 1974, Canada and Mexico have had a bilateral agreement for lawful and orderly uh, seasonal farm workers to move between Mexico and Canada. And that's a, a tremendously successful program that has uh, done nothing but benefit Canada and improved the productivity of its farm sector and its, its, uh, its economy uh, in general something starkly at odds with how the the U.S. and Mexico have managed their relationship. And Canada has also fought demographic decline in parts of Francophone Canada by actively recruiting Francophone immigrants. For example, uh, they've had job fairs, including in Tunisia, for Francophone, for potential Francophone immigrants to Canada through a program called Destination Canada. So mm-hmm. none of that is to say that Canada is just like the United States or that, that, that the U.S. Should, uh, should adopt their policies wholesale. But it really does suggest that some of the, some of the broad economic concerns that are, being, uh, that, are, that are being stated prominently in the U.S., certainly from the White House right now, uh, don't reflect processes that, that must happen uh, and, and that we could learn a lot from that experience. Michael, you, you talk about a program in Canada that results in the, the lawful and orderly use of Mexican workers, uh, seasonal Mexican workers, and that sounds remarkably like um, what we used to have in the United States called the Bracero Program. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, a little bit about that experience uh, here in the U.S.? Between the 1970s and uh, up until a few years ago, there was a huge wave of unauthorized immigration from Mexico. Uh, it started to taper, taper off uh, recently, but I, I think uh, it's not well known that before that there was very little as well. And the, the main reason that there was very little uh, unauthorized immigration from Mexico between 1954 and 1965 was that a, a very large uh, lawful bilateral agreement for labor mobility, migration for work, between the U.S. and Mexico existed. That was the Bracero program that you're talking about. It uh, completely displaced the unauthorized immigration that had been happening before it. And within uh, several years after it was eliminated under Lyndon Johnson, it, was, it, was, it also was replaced with a, a huge wave of unauthorized workers filling many of the same jobs in, in, in farming and elsewhere. And uh, it had, it, it's a very, very unpopular program. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it resulted in many violations of the workers' rights, uh, particularly because they were tied to single employers who had little incentive to give them exactly what they had been promised. And many of their wages uh, uh, were, were, uh, uh, were uh, stolen uh, either by U.S. farmers or by Mexican officials. And it, it really was uh, not well designed, and it had some 
some uh, major problems. And these days, if you talk about the Bracero program, there, there's a real allergy to it. But uh, I, in yeah, the, the, the Canadian example, which, as I, I mentioned, has been running since 1974, uh, shows that things can work entirely differently. Uh, the, none of the, the problems that I just mentioned beset the Canadian program. It's designed quite differently. And the, the, the Canadian example, I think, shows that there are, there are ways that countries can cooperate on things like um, seasonal farm work that are enormously better than the way that the last couple of generations of Americans have done it de facto, which is to, uh, which is to get their, their uh, vegetables, uh, melons, uh, and, uh, and hand-picked fruit from... Uh, a, a, a vast uh, black market that, that has really been uh, economically efficient to say nothing of the, the many uh, human consequences of that black market. One thing I wanted to uh, to ask you about, Michael, was looking at a, a, a different sector of the workforce where um, work visas have been granted in advance um, or the H-1B programme which I know is something that uh, currently uh, Donald Trump is looking to restrict um, and, uh, you know, but perhaps police in, uh, in a more aggressive fashion. Um, is that wise? I, I, you know, from, from what you've been saying and, and the gains that we can get from immigration, if there are high-skilled workers or particular talent that US, um, US-based companies are trying to bring over, again, surely that's something which can only have a positive impact on the US economy. There is, uh, there is excellent evidence from economic research about the high-skill H-1B visa that you mentioned. Um, what is often discussed in the, in the press and from the White House are anecdotes about that program. Uh, the systematic statistical evidence uh, uh, has been used by economists like uh, Giovanni Perry at the University of California, Davis, and uh, Bill Kerr at Harvard Business School to test some of these ideas more systematically. A, a paper co-authored by Giovanni Perry uses a, a, a fascinating natural experiment that happened not long after the turn of the century, and that was that the 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 quota for H-1B visas was massively increased at the time of the, the Y2K bug, this, pro, this uh, co- computer problem that was systematic throughout the, the whole economy uh, in, in which c- computers were not set up to properly uh, re- reflect the, the change in year from 1999 to 2000, and it required a, a huge wave of computer programmers to come in. So they, they temporarily uh, greatly increased the number of uh, high-skill visas that many of those computer programmers used. And a few years after that problem was solved, they they massively uh, brought it down again. So they eliminated about two-thirds of the, the quota for those visas. And that allows uh, a, a, an economist to go back and look and, and see, well, in, the, in places that were uh, more uh, severely, uh, uh, in, in places where that sudden elimination of H-1Bs from the workforce uh, hit harder in, in quantitative terms uh, what happened to U.S. workers. So one of the things they tested is whether those 
whether there were more uh, U.S. workers in the in the, the STEM jobs, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math jobs, uh, and there weren't any. Uh, it, it, in fact, it seems like there there might have been a, a, a less uh, when U.S. metropolitan areas had a, a, a lot of high-skill H-1B visa workers removed from them. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that when when they were taken out, uh, U.S. workers were crowded in. And another investigation that's been done is the effect of that removal of H-1B workers on innovation as measured by uh, by patenting. And it, it, it also seems to be the case that the more that uh, firms were working with high-skilled workers from abroad through the H-1B visa program, the more uh, patents were emerging from those firms. And, and uh, conversely, when they were removed, fewer patents uh, were emerging. So that, that's not a complete measure of how those people were affecting the economy. Uh, that is systematically, not anecdotally. But it really does suggest that some of the, the political rhetoric that we're hearing now about uh, the H-1B program as a whole being a catastrophe for U.S. workers and not uh, rather than a, a, a tool to to spur innovation and productivity in the U.S. economy is not based on economic evidence. Interesting. So really that brings us full circle to the idea that, again, this isn't a game of musical chairs. This is a game where you can actually end up increasing the number of chairs by the effects you have uh, coming in uh, as an immigrant worker into the economy. Um, this has been fantastic, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. And we're looking forward to reading your upcoming book, Walls of Nations. While immigration reform is being held out there as a panacea for a host of, immig- of issues that plague the average American, I think we can safely say that immigration is a double-edged sword, and the costs come quickly while the benefits come slowly. That is the biggest challenge that we have today. Politicians want to deliver the results now without regard for what they're giving up in the future. And it's time to stop making this an us-versus-them argument and instead make this a question about how best to get the long-term benefit while keeping the short-term costs to a minimum. The reality is we've just barely scratched the surface on this topic, and you can expect much more in the future. In our next podcast, for example, we will discuss the rise of the machines. If you think immigrants are taking your jobs, then you've got your eye on the wrong problem. Automation and the future of work is really what you need to be taking some time to understand. But we'll save that for next week. I'm Gina Sanchez. And I'm James Mitchell. And this has been Real Life Economics, brought to you by Tom X. Visit us at www.reallifeeconomics.com. Follow us on at Real Life Econ on Twitter and email us at reallifeecon at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to Real Life Economics, because economics happens to you in real life. Boost Mobile tiene una gran oferta para que aproveches tu reembolso de impuestos al máximo y te mantengas conectado. Al cambiarte a Boost, recibe un 50% de descuento en tu primer mes de datos ilimitados. O, con un plan ilimitado de 40 dólares, llévate un Samsung Galaxy A15 5G por $39.99. Obtén los mejores teléfonos en las redes 5G más grandes del país. Con Boost Mobile, cambiarse es fácil. Solo visita BoostMobile.com. Boost Mobile, sin miedo al éxito. Para clientes nuevos y solamente en línea, requiere Garopay. 50% de descuento en el primer mes requiere un plan de $25 al mes. Aplican otras restricciones. Visita BoostMobile.com. 
Este abril te invitamos a nuestra feria virtual Univisión Contigo rumbo a la universidad. Conéctate virtualmente con representantes de colegios y universidades en la costa este. Desde Nueva York a Florida, aprende sobre ayuda financiera, becas y otros recursos para continuar tu educación. Regístrate para asistir y para la oportunidad de ganar una tableta. Te esperamos en Univisión Contigo rumbo a la universidad del 3 al 9 de abril. Regístrate ya en univision.com diagonal universidad. 